If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the October issue of BBC History Magazine's monthly podcast. I'm the magazine's editor, Dave Musgrove. Let me tell you what's coming up in this edition. Firstly, you'll hear from the creative director of BBC TV history programming, Lawrence Reese. Lawrence, in the course of 20 years of award-winning filmmaking, has probably spoken to more people intimately involved in the horrors of the Second World War than anyone else. His new book, Their Darkest Hour, is a brilliant and chilling look at the most extraordinary stories he's heard from that war. Secondly, this month is 25 years since one of the most momentous events in British archaeology, the raising of the Mary Rose, Henry VIII's flagship from the depths of the Solent. I've been down to Portsmouth and taken a tour of the Mary Rose Museum with the chief executive of the Mary Rose Trust, John Lippiot. Later on, he'll be telling us what the future holds for this magnificent ship. I then took a boat out to the very place where the Mary Rose sank back in 1545, in the company of historian David Childs. And our podcast this month concludes with David's dramatic account of the Mary Rose's last moments. Now, both these subjects are explored in full in the October issue of BBC History magazine, along with a wealth of other topics, including the results of our search for Britain's most enigmatic epitaph. I do hope you'll pick up a copy. You can buy the magazine in all good news agents in the UK and in borders in the US. The magazine is monthly and goes on sale on the last Tuesday of the month for just £3.60. And you can save money and a trip to the shops by subscribing. UK podcast listeners can subscribe today for just £16.20 every six issues. And with that, you're saving 25% on the cover price. You can order online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine, quoting pod 07. Or you can call our hotline on 0844-844-0250. Now on with the podcast. And our first interview then is with Lawrence Rees, who will give us a stark insight into the nature of ordinary people under the stress of war. Lawrence, your new book is something of a distillation of your 20-odd years of history filmmaking. You've gone back through the hundreds of interviews you've conducted with people who lived through the Second World War and written short essays on the 35 most extraordinary, yet otherwise quite ordinary people you've spoken to. So what makes the people you've chosen stand out? Well, in, in simple terms, Dave, what I've done is I've tried to pick the people who made the biggest impact on me. Uh, and that can be for a variety of reasons. It could be the for example, the appalling nature of the crime, like Petrus Solyonka, who shot women and children during the Holocaust, or someone like Masaya Enomoto, who this extraordinary Japanese soldier who ended up raping a Chinese woman, killing her, and then eating her, for goodness sake. Or it could be stories of heroism, like someone like Alas Fala or Vladimir Kantovsky, who amazingly stood out against the oppression that was around them. Or I guess it could be just a pure insight into the human condition, for example, someone like Zinada Pitkina, who was a female member of Smirsch, who ended up shooting a German major, and, and she truly terrifying person to meet she was, even 55 years after the end of the war, because she talked about the joy she felt when she pulled the trigger. And this really was a, an incredible demonstration, I felt, of the enormous motivational power just of pure hatred. 
Okay, now I, I, I've read some of the chapters in your book, and it's it's truly powerful stuff. But what it is 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 is, is oral history, and some historians might come and they might question the validity of relying on this testimony. Um, so, what would you say to them? Well, I'm, I perhaps some would, although it's interesting the extent to which so many academic historians now practice oral history themselves and recognise its value. For instance, the uh, raw interviews of my series I made 10 years ago, Nazis Warning from History, those raw interviews were thought sufficiently valuable that the University of Sheffield Library wanted them deposited uh, with them so that um, academics can study it. So I, I think that you've got to make the first point to say, well, perhaps some academics feel that, but equally a large number don't. Um, and my, my point to the people who, who, who sometimes have doubts about oral history would be to say, I think what's vital is that historians are sceptical of all sources, everything, not just oral history, but written sources as well. Mm. Almost all sources are partial and fragmentary, and we need to check them all carefully. And we checked all of our interviewees extremely carefully before we filmed anyone. Uh, and, and what I found which was interesting is people say, well, how can you expect people to remember something 60 years ago? And what I found was really interesting was if you've had an incredibly emotionally searing experience, what I've discovered that is that that lives with you more over a period of many years than simply trying to ask yourself, well, what did I have for lunch four weeks ago? And I think anybody listening to this, try it themselves. Think of the most emotionally searing episode of your life and see if you can recall that more or less clearly than what you um, had for Sunday lunch three, uh, three weekends back. And I think I know what the answer is to that. So I think we've got to recognize that it, it, we need to check everything carefully and we need to recognize that certain types of memories are much more powerfully imprinted than others. Okay. Uh, now, the people you interviewed, um, you know, as you said, they did have these searing, uh, searing experiences. Um, but some of these experiences were very dark. Um, so so has, has your 20 years of working in this field um, and speaking to these people affected your view of humanity? It's very hard to know, I think. And I think it's hard for me to say because I don't know what kind of person I would have been had... Um, had I not done it, if you see what I mean, I don't. Yeah. Maybe I would have turned into a much nicer, brighter, more optimistic person if I'd never got involved with this. I, you, you can't know. You well, can't know. You, you are a very, fairly nice, bright person. So. <laughs> but, but I do think that certainly it's made me think about you know what I tried to do in this book. One of the reasons I wanted to do it was to see, to the extent to which it was possible to make sense of what I'd learned. And I think that essentially, in two ways, it's it's altered how I look at things. The first is to have this incredible sense of the fragility of everything that you you know we want to believe in our lives that things are going to carry on much as they are it's a clearly a deep human need to believe that everything will be pretty much like it is today but what you discover from talking to these people is the enormity of the capacity in human history for sudden and intense change often sudden and intense change for the worst and and i think you can see that you know the current wars uh, now I thought of it one time looking at the conflict in Bosnia, these people who've been living relatively ordinary lives, suddenly their villages are shelled or whatever. So it's that sense of fragility. And the second thing is the sense I've got of the malleability of human behavior, of the extent to which people are much more willing to fit in to whatever system they happen to be in. As a general rule, there are always people who stand out against it, a small number, but it may be that it's a smaller number of people who actually stand out against oppression than we might actually like to think. 
Okay, well, that moves on to my next question, because the, 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 one of the important things of your book is that you're talking to ordinary people, so, um, so it's, it's, not, it's not the big players who, who you've interviewed here. So did you feel that these ordinary people in the war, um, what sort of sense was driving them on? Were they simply looking out for number one, or were they really subscribed to those political views of the leaders that we all know about from history? I think that people obviously are motivated for a whole variety, a whole cocktail of reasons. It can be patriotism, it can be an intense sense of racial belief, a sense that the enemy you're fighting is completely inferior. It can be a sense that I got on both the German and Japanese sides of, frankly, hypocrisy at the British. Um, It was interesting on the German and Japanese sides that both of them, uh, many of the people I met who fought for either Hitler or Hirohito, desperately envied the British, and what they envied the British during the war was our colonies, and in particular India. And they said, and I remember more than one said to me, how is it possible that um, you you, you tried to stop us getting colonies and an empire when you've done so well out of it? It's just hypocrisy. We didn't see you giving up India, so why should, in the case of Germany, we give up Russia, or uh, in the case of Japan, why should we give up China? So you, you saw that sense as well. And, and what it all came back to was a really rather frightening sense, I felt, that um, most people, even when they're doing what we recognize as very, very bad things, look back, and even now, many of them think still that if only we understood what was going on, we'd understand that they were doing the right thing at the time. That's that's really what's terrifying a lot of the time. Yeah, and, w- and when you're talking about bad things, I mean one of one of the the baddest episodes of your book is is when you talk to a, a Japanese soldier who confessed to truly horrific crimes, raping, killing, and then eating a Chinese woman. I mean that it must be very difficult to remain objective when you're talking to someone like that. So can you give us an idea of what it's like to meet and talk to people who who you know have done things that today would really horrify us? Well, I think that's a very I- interesting example because as I write in the book, that's one of the very very few times that I had during an interview, listening to what someone was saying, a real genuine sense of, 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 of almost physical disgust and revulsion. And as he was telling me about what was going on, it, I remember it was very late at night in a, a Japanese inn in Tokyo, a traditional Japanese inn we were filming. And I kind of got the feeling, because we interview these people much, much longer than we ever use them in the TV programs, which is one of the reasons with the book, because got, we've got access to much longer transcripts than you ever have time for in yeah. the TV. But, but so the interview can last you know, often more than an hour. And I had the sort of sense that the room was filling with these horrible stories he was telling. It was a weird feeling. And then once we changed tapes in the camera and opened the door, and it, it, I lost it. But that's very unusual. For the most part, even when I met someone like Oscar Groening, who worked at Auschwitz, and, you know, was talking about how Auschwitz was a tremendous place to work and so on, even when I met someone like him, then what, what I was struck with was his sheer normalcy, if that's a word, is he, he, he reminded me very much of one of my old uncles who worked in a bank. Not surprising, because it turned out Oscar Groening had worked in a bank before the war. Yeah. So it, it's very, very rare, I felt, that when you meet some of the, meet people who you think ought to kind of exude a kind of evil quality, given the basis of what they did, that you ever felt that. That's one of the, one of the almost frightening things about it, that so few people conform to your conceptions, preconceptions of what they ought to be like that. Yeah, so it, so it's very much that that idea of the banality of evil that you. Well, were they're not banal. I think you see I, when I think the the whole Hannah Arendt banality of evil thing, when I would qualify it is to say, they're not banal people. They're not banal in the sense that they're quote ordinary in that they only they had an ordinary life. What they are is like us. What they are 
is like uh, um, they are part of the human race. They're not a particular group of people, like some sort of weirdo psychopathic group that you could somehow, by testing, isolate away. What they are are people very often at the total mainstream of the culture they're in. And it's in that sense that they're dangerous. And so that's why they need not necessarily be banal in the sense of being boring and ordinary in that way. What they are is ordinary in the sense that they are, they are going down the mainstream of a culture rather than, as we perhaps might want to believe, at the kind of lunatic fringes. Sure. Okay, now, now for me, one of the most gripping and, and moving stories in your book is, is that of Toivy Blatt, the uh, Polish Jew who survived the Sobibor death camp. Um, can you just tell us, uh, in, in your own words, what happened to him and what you learnt from talking to him? He, he, you're absolutely right. I mean, he, he was certainly for me as well uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary person to me. And I know why I learned, he, he gave me a lot of um, uh, insight and food for thought about human behaviour, really, because what he talked about was being taken as a teenager to uh, uh, a death camp, witnessing his mother uh, and father uh, being taken away and not crying in the death camp. He was only focused on trying to survive himself, on being picked to be a member of the Zonderkommando, which would mean a temporary stay of execution, which he was picked for. He was then surprised subsequently how he wasn't crying, he wasn't devastatingly upset. It was almost like something came in, uh, um, worked into him to try and make him survive through it. And so when you ask him, well, what did you learn? He's very clear about what he learned from that experience. He said, nobody knows themselves. You cannot know how you will behave in, position, in, a, condi- in a position where you are tested to the extreme. It made me think it's almost like he, took, you know, he talked about human behavior a bit like we talk about um, uh, how water, for example, is, diff- is a different substance at different temperatures. So it's, it's freezing when it's, 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 it's a block of ice when it's freezing, it's normal water when it's normal temperature, it's steam when it's hot. A bit like human behavior is, is, is malleable and alterable according to the situational ethic, the conditions that are placed upon it. And when we think to ourselves, what would perhaps we have done and how would we behave, the problem we've got, the big emotional leap we've got to make is, is imagining not just ourselves, but how the whole of that situation is impacting on us and altering how we actually behave. And that's something that I think Toivy was, was very, very clear on. Yeah, so that's, that's really stark force, isn't it? And that's, that's what's, that what this book is all about. It's, it's very raw, it's very real history. And, and to me, it was a very gripping and emotionally charged way of looking at the Second World War. So, so just to conclude, why do you feel that more historians haven't explored this very powerful past that you're presenting here? I think the first big reason it's nothing to do with interest or ability. The first big reason is cost. The fact is that it's enormously expensive to um, not just travel around the world and film these people, but to do the raw basic research you have to do to find them, to convince them to take part, and then to check as far as you possibly can that the testimony is essentially reliable, it's that they are who they say they are. All of those things involve huge cost. And so if it wasn't for the BBC, if it wasn't for the public service element of this and the fact that these were first TV programs, I don't believe any, any author could ever have done it because you would never get the money back in crude business terms from any publisher to justify the amount of cost it takes to get it. So I think essentially what it is is I'm, I'm the fortunate beneficiary of being in a system of wanting to make these television programs and then having them funded as TV programs in the first place 
and then having this fantastic offshoot that you have all of this fantastic raw material that you can then use in, in this way. Thanks very much. Lawrence Reese. Lawrence Reese's Their Darkest Hour, People Tested to the Extreme in World War II, is published now by Ebury. And from darkest hours to the dark depths, we now turn our attention to the Mary Rose. So join me and John Lippiot for a tour around the Mary Rose Museum. I'm here in the Museum of the Mary Rose with John Lippiot, the Chief Executive, and we are currently standing in the, in the main foyer of the hall. John, John, what are we looking at at the moment? Well, we've come into this, what was a temporary exhibition in the 1980s, and has remained largely the same. And the first part of our exhibition now is talking about the, the excavation that went on. Indeed, there's a diver over there, Eric Sivir, who, who dived in those early days, and he's showing to the visitors there some real artefacts that he brought up in those early days. But that was 25 years ago when she came up, and we're really telling the story. Through here, we've got some oral history of the other divers, Margaret Rule, who was the archaeologist in charge of it. We've got um, a recording of Prince Charles coming here. He dived quite a lot in the wreck site. We've got a model of the ship, and we're showing people what the ship was like. But um, this is going back in time, because this ship is uh, very nearly 500 years old. So we're about to dive into the museum for proper and see the contents of the ship. We've just looked at the ship hall, where there you see the hull. It's half of the hull. It fell over on its starboard side, and it's the starboard side that's conserved. We're spraying it with a chemical at the moment. In five years' time, we will be turning off the sprays and drying it out. So in 2016, the whole conservation process will be over. But that's the ship. We're stepping into the museum now to show you just 6% of the artefacts we have. That's a mere 1,000. I've got another 9,000 I might have time to show you behind the scenes and another 7,000 that I want to be conserving in our bid to the Heritage Lottery Fund which we're working on. Our aim is to combine the artefacts we're about to see here with the ship. We're aiming to do that for 2011. Fantastic. Let's wander around the museum. Here we are in uh, the section on conservation because obviously the need for conservation is absolute. Uh, The materials would shrivel up, shrink and disintegrate if we didn't have expert conservators. And while I showed you some of the conservation work at, uh, behind the scenes, here we're trying to show the public how it's done and the need for it. It's a long, painstaking process. Uh, some of these things have been 25 years in the conservation process. But the end is in sight, and we are getting through our load, and we will finish that. We've got these 19,000 artefacts, many in remarkable condition, but it's only because of the expertise of the conservators that we can do that. We lead the world in the conservation of waterlogged materials, and uh, the science of it is fascinating. If we were to come in, if we're coming into this panel here, I mean, for instance, here we have the marks. They were largely illiterate in those days, so they would have marks, shapes to designate who owned what. Um, Henry's own shape, not that he was illiterate, was a broad arrow, so that bronze sheave there has actually got the broad arrow. It's still used today, and in modern things, you'll step on board a modern warship, you'll still see these with arrows on it. What we're seeing in the Mary Rose is this one day of time, a moment in time. And so it is a time capsule, and it has everything from the admiral on board and the the rich down to the poorest of the people on board, the sailors and the soldiers. And so I'm looking in a case now with you at a brass candlestick and a wooden candlestick for the officers and then for the ratings, but also you see the candles itself, the actual wax. And while we have this case of 
pewter plate, beautiful pewter plate, the largest collection in the world and important, but of course pewter survives elsewhere. Here in front of us are the wooden plates of the sailors and the soldiers. Now these are absolutely unique because they would be thrown away when they were broken eventually and they'd have disintegrated. These are perfect and we've got hundreds of them. But look at these wonderful wooden tankards. They've got the owner's mark scratched on board. There's a pewter tankard in this one, but these wooden ones are much rarer. Everyone was living in their own little world, so these are both the personal and professional belongings of everyone from the Admiral to the most junior. Now, in this case, everyone had knits, so everyone had individual knit coats. They didn't share them. So we've got some exquisitely carved ones, probably owned by the Admirals and the officers. Uh, but then you've got these other more ra- ragged ones, and uh, those, no doubt, were the sailors. Many of them were in little leather pouches. But we've got the knits. We can actually uh, analyse what was creeping around in their hair. This wonderful thing here is the pepper grinder. We've got the peppercorns from it. And inside, the peppercorns literally worth their weight in gold because of the way they were imported. So that would very much have been some officer's uh, personal belonging. The galley, where they cooked, the kitchen... Uh, had two great cauldrons. We're built. looking at some enormous cauldrons here, aren't they? Are these, so are, they these, are. are these original cauldrons? These are, everything in this museum is original, unless I say otherwise. Um, and looking in there, there's a rat in there. That isn't original to the Mary Rose. <laughs> it's a real rat, but it came from the Natural History Museum. But these are the Tudor bricks, and these cauldrons sat on top of an oven. And we've got the firewood here, the silver birch logs with the bark on still, but the shovel, the ladle, the cooking pots, the bellows to brighten it up. And they had two cauldrons, and they could roast, they could bake, they could boil, they could steam. There were lots of ways they could cook, and it's all here. And we've got the bones from where the, the food they had. They had a flesh for four days in the week, and they had fish for the other three days. And we know exactly what, how much in weight they had. But it's a, from a pig bone of the May Rose that the DNA was used, proven to be of use for forensic science. So we are at the cutting edge of some scientific things. By keeping these things from so long ago, they were able to prove that DNA went back and was secure back in time to nearly 500 years, and that convinced the world that they could use DNA for forensic science. Now, uh, ahead of us in the cabinet, uh, in front of us, I can see some musical instruments. John, tell me about this. Yes, well, obviously music was important. I think it always has been at sea, and whether these were playing in to, to the officers or whether they played sea shanties to the sailors, we don't really know. But, I mean, here is the only shawm in the world, and that was the predecessor of the oboe. This has just come back from the British Museum. It's a replica just underneath, and that replica we can play, and we can actually tell what sort of music, what it sounded like, and we can play it for you in a a minute, and we'll do that. But the fiddle had come in at the beginning of the century, and so there's one of the fiddles. We've got two of these, and we found the bow of the fiddle in the mud the other day. And then the table drum uh, and the table pipe. Here's the table pipes, where they would play. It's a sort of penny whistle, but carved out of wood. But the drummer would beat the drum with one hand and play the pipe with the other. Then here we are. This is uh, there's a replica of the barber surgeon's um, cabin there, and you probably hear him talking to our visitors. But in it was found a chest. Here's the chest. Over 50 items in the chest, such as these jars. They're wooden jars. They're pewter jars. We've got the ointments from inside those jars, so we can analyse what sort of medicines he was using. But there's a wooden feeding bottle. His apprentices did the barbering on board, you know, the the shaving and so on. So these are the cutthroat razors. There's a shaving bowl. But he was a surgeon, and uh, that mallet there was used for amputation. 
and he'd get a sharp knife and he'd just whack it down with that great big mallet and off came the limb. The syringes there of dubious... Um, I wouldn't want to be done by them, but here's a, a bronze syringe, there's a, a pewter one there, there's pewter bowl, a bleeding bowl, you've got the brushes, you've got the needle, you've got the little jars of ointment, beautifully made, you've got the spatulas, wooden spatulas, just as they had when, uh, in, if you went into a surgery today, you have the same sort of spatula. And these are the handles of the instrument, the iron has gone, the handles of the saws, the drills and so on. I would not wish to be under a barber surgeon looked after in those days because I look how, in, in a way, crude those were. But then you look at this syringe and you realise it doesn't look too dissimilar to a syringe this year. But I wouldn't want to be have that used on me. Let me just describe the syringe, which is, does look extremely painful. Um, it's got a, a very long pointed syringe end to it. Um, and it's uh, well, that's made of pewter, isn't it? That's pewter, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And still in working order, you could still inject someone with that today. And I wonder if that was used on King Henry VIII himself, because actually it was used for the French pox, as they called it. The French called it the English pox. But nonetheless, that's the use of that syringe. Now, John, as we're progressing into a room of some cannons, can you just tell me a little bit about this museum and uh, how long it's been here and and what its future might be? Yes, certainly. I mean, we came in here in uh, the early 80s, and this was a temporary exhibition built in a a wooden ship hall where they built little boats, and these boats uh, were used for, you know, the likes of going on board the bigger ships. But what, what we have here is a temporary exhibition put in with the hope that we would always reunite the artefacts from the find back to the ship. And those are our plans indeed, because what we're hoping to do is complete all the conservation of the hull, but move all this exhibition up to rejoin the ship. And we're going to build the other half of the ship and put these things in. Now, this museum has a 1,000 items. I want to put 80% of our 19,000 items into the new museum. And we're going to put them back into a mirror image of the ship so people will look into showcases and see literally thousands of items where they would have been in their ship. And as the visitors go through in the future, they will walk close to the real ship on one side and looking into the ship as it would have looked packed with all these things on the others. Here we've got the longbows and the arrows. Um, Until Mary Rose came up, there was only one longbow in existence, and that had been drilled through. We've now got about 150 and thousands of arrows. It's the sheer weaponry the Mary Rose carried. And if you look at these longbows, they are individual sculptures. Each has been carved very carefully. It's D-shaped. The sapwood and the hardwood is there, so this gives us its tension springiness. From this, we know that you can pull 160 pounds of power, rather than the experts thought before, about 80. It could kill several people by the same arrow, by going through one to the next and to the next. So they were very powerful weapons, firing at around 10 arrows a minute, so much faster than uh, the gunpowder. So they were still effective, but at the same time, perhaps it was just giving way. This is the warfare of the hundreds years beforehand. Mary Rose is bringing in the new form of warfare, that of taking large cannon to sea. These bows are amazing. They're at least as tall as a man, if not taller. Well, they are. And when you see in some of the pictures, and here, here's a medieval picture, and it shows one only about three feet long. And uh, Robert Hardy, Dr. Robert Hardy, is the world's expert on the longbow. He was staying with me last night, and he was given an old medieval picture. And his first thing he said was, those longbows aren't long enough, because when they sh- the artist showed them, they were less than the height of a man. These are at least the height of a man. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In materials, we've got the largest collection of medieval of Tudor uh, clothing anywhere in the world. So here, leather jerkins, and we've got, I think it's about a dozen different um, designs of those. But look, this is a, a woolen arm and leg warmer, knitted. Uh, here are woolen shirts, and uh, people didn't said they didn't have checks in those days. Well, here's a fragment of a shirt which shows they did. This remarkable thing is the coif, the hat of the barber surgeon. And for those who know the Holbein painting with his barber surgeon, seeing uh, these senior gentlemen wearing their coifs, Here's the real one, made of velvet. It's been flattened in order to preserve it as best we can uh, in a remarkable condition. Again, it might have been made in the last 20 years. We've got the, the buckles, the buttons, the ribbons, the shoelaces, the ends of the shoelaces, the hooks. Um, here, laid out, it just shows you the variety of things they had. And they looked after themselves very well. There was a lot of finery around. And they dressed according to their rank, and indeed the colours of their clothing uh, depended on their status in life. And uh, this case shows just a few of the many hundreds of shoes we have. But we've got thigh-length boots, we've got square toes, round toes, pointed toes. We haven't got platform heels, but uh, we can tell how they were made and had straw stuffed between two layers of of, uh, the leather there and how they were stitched, and they were stitched in different ways. So we know an awful lot about that. And finally here we have the ship's bell. Carsten says it was made in the year 1510. It looks as though it was made yesterday. It looks like a replica, but that is nearly 500 years old. Stunning. It's, it's easy to forget when we're thinking about the Mary Rose that, to sort of just concentrate on the, on the, on the fact that it, was, that it was brought up in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, the history of it, the story of the Mary Rose, is, is really important, isn't it? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important find in terms of our British history. I think it would be a remarkable find to find any ship from the 16th century in this condition, to find the first true warship built for this country, which was the flagship of King Henry at the very start of his reign and served for 34 years of his 37 years on the throne, to have such a history and to have fought 
as you'll hear later today, in a battle which uh, was really threatening the secure nature of the Kingdom of England. The French fleet with 30,000 troops on board, much larger than the Spanish Armada that was to follow 47 years later. The English fleet, only King Henry on South Sea Common with only 10,000 soldiers. This ship was there. This ship led the battle fleet out to engage. Yes, it sank in action. And it's extraordinary that we have this vitally important ship that was at the very start of Britain turning from an isolated power on the edge of Europe to being a major world power through its maritime strength and trade. It started with the May Rose. So it is extraordinary to have this, what we call the key ship of a key king, to have it. Here's the replica Sean. I was to press... without finding these instruments and being able to play them. Now, as we leave the museum, you were talking earlier about your plans for the future and about how you want to create a new museum for the Mary Rose. Can you just tell me a little bit about the timescale? What, what are we waiting for and when are we going to see this new museum? Yes, I mean, certainly. Well, we got a bid into the Heritage Lottery Fund at the end of June and we're asking them for a major grant of £21 million to help us build what is a £35 million both museum and conservation plan to complete the conservation, that is the drying out of the ship, and then to conserve all the rest of them, of the artefacts, and to get them up to the museum. So the design is to have returned the artefacts to the ship in the dry dock where she is and build the permanent building over the top because at the moment she's in a temporary structure a tent that was put up there in the 1980s with a 10 year life it was then recovered in the 1990s with another short life that is time expired so what we need to do is get it all out of the way only that way can we have a self-sustaining museum and trust to look after this treasure this is like Pompeii, this is better than Pompeii Pompeii preserves some items this really has preserved virtually every item from that day and uh, it's a treasure unparalleled anywhere in the world and we have to look after it this is the only way to do it with the help from the Heritage Lottery Fund we have an awful lot of help our conservation is only proceeding today because of help from the Heritage Lottery Fund and we've had many millions from them to complete it and finish this this nation and indeed the world will have this treasure an icon which is unique in the world we're aiming, all being well, to have it completed by 2011, which is the 500th anniversary of the maiden voyage, open in time for the uh, Olympic tourists to come in 2012, and then, while well, we will be drying out the ship, we will then open the ship up and finish that conservation process by 2016. But we hope to open this new museum to visitors in, at the end of 2011. It's a very exciting prospect. Thanks very much, John. Thank you very much. Now, that museum is situated in the historic Portsmouth Dockyards, and from there, it's just a short boat trip into the Solent to the very place where Henry's boat famously sank. And this is what historian David Charles told me about the demise of the Mary Rose as we took just such a boat trip. Today is the anniversary of the loss of the Mary Rose in 1545, and it's an appropriate day to go and visit the site and uh, reflect on that great loss of life. Over 600 sailors went down 
when she sank that day, uh, which is part of the tragedy right at the start of the creation of the Navy Royal, the predecessor of the Royal Navy, which was Henry VIII's creation. And we te- you've said that we tend to focus more on the, uh, on the impressive lifting of the Mary Rose 25 years ago than on its actual history. So can you just, can you just briefly try and explain what happened to the Mary Rose that day, why it was there and why it sank? Right, Mary Rose was an old warship. She'd been in service 35 years, had been refitted and was probably heavier than she should have been at the time uh, she capsized. Um, she was altering course with open gun ports and as far as we can tell, heeled over and water started coming into the gun ports. It doesn't really explain why she capsized. It was a salvable situation to be in if the crew had been better trained if uh, she hadn't been so top-heavy, if uh, a lot of reasons um, why the accident shouldn't have happened, it did, and part of it was she was probably manoeuvring also to engage French galleys, which were uh, awaiting her arrival. She had to get past them to get at the French fleet, which was amassed off the Isle of Wight, and probably a mixture of instability and violent manoeuvres to engage the French led to the accident in which he sank. There was quite a large French fleet just off the southern here, wasn't there? Why, why was there a large fleet and how much danger was Henry's England in? <clears throat> England was in grave danger. For the first time, there was a continental alliance which could actually have the power to invade England. Most of Henry's reign he'd spent invading France, but now France has felt sufficiently strong and he brought over a group larger than the more famous Spanish Armada to do the business, but was prevented by the very existence of the English fleet here at Portsmouth from landing on mainland England. He made a few forays on the Isle of Wight, which weren't successful either, and sailed away. But for a period of a few days, England was in as great a danger as she was when the Spanish Armada appeared in Elizabeth's reign. So you've just written a new book on Mary Rose. There there can't be that much need to say on it, surely. There's an awful lot. We've concentrated on this day, 19th of July, the day she sank, and, of course, the recovery 25 years ago, led people to think she sank on her maiden voyage. She was a, a very old ship, 35 years. She'd been in existence for most of Henry's reign and had fought in each of his campaigns against the French, three against the French, one against the Scots, in major uh, skirmishes and played a very important part her very existence as part of the new Navy Royal a ship that needed to be manned every day of the year a ship that needed to be commanded by an admiral in command of a fleet things that hadn't really happened before and with Mary Rose we get the stirrings that lead really to the creation of a standing Navy which became the Royal Navy and the major fleet uh, in, in the world. Fantastic. OK. Thanks very much. Thanks. David Childs is the author of The Warship Mary Rose, The Life and Times of Henry VIII's Flagship, which has just been published by Greenwood. That's it. You can read more about all the stories we've been discussing in the current issue of BBC History magazine and much more besides. I hope you've enjoyed this BBC History magazine podcast. Do listen again next month for more on the latest happenings in the history world. Goodbye. <laughs>